As Chris pointed out last week, there are a number of faulty definitions of faith that circulate. He mentioned the instance of a young boy who was asked to define faith and thought for a minute and said, well, faith is believing something you know isn't true. I think it was H.L. Mencken who said that uh, faith is the unwarranted belief in the totally improbable. And yet what we see is, from a New Testament standpoint, the writer here in chapter 11 and verse 1 has given us a definition of what faith is, and then the rest of the chapter are demonstrations of that faith in action. So verse 1 is faith defined, and verses 2 through 40 is faith demonstrated. So there's two components of genuine biblical faith in verse 1. One is the assurance of things hoped for. The second is the conviction of things not seen. And by the assurance of things hoped for, he was referring to the things that we hope for because God has promised them to us. Hope in the Scriptures, you understand, is not just some kind of wishful thinking, like I have been hoping for years that the Golden State Warriors would make it to the NBA playoffs. That is unwarranted belief in the totally improbable right there. But hope in the, in the Scriptures in the New Testament is a confident expectation which is based on the reliability or the trustworthiness of the person who's promised whatever it is to us. So we hope for things that God has promised to us. And faith is the, sh- the assurance, the quiet conviction, the quiet confidence that God will keep His Word to us. The quiet trust that He meant what He said and that He will make good on His Word to us, that He will keep His promises to us. All of us know people whose Word uh, we can't trust. They say they'll be there at 2 and we think to ourselves 2.15 at the earliest because they're not reliable. But the mark of faith is it recognizes that God is somebody whose Word can be counted on, uh, who when He makes a promise to us in the Scriptures, it's not an idle word, that He fully intends to keep His promise. So, for instance, when Jesus promises to us in Matthew 6 that just as the Heavenly Father clothes the lilies of the field and feeds the birds of the air, so He will take care of us. And it's a quiet assurance that as unpromising as my circumstances might seem, that God has made a promise to me to take care of my needs, to meet my needs for shelter and for food and clothing. And it's the quiet assurance that that He will that He'll see me through. Even though as I look around, I don't see how He's going to do it. What I have to go on is His promise to, that He will take care of me. That's the assurance of things hoped for. Now the second thing He says is the conviction of things not seen. That is the, the belief, the quiet confidence in my heart that it is the unseen things in life that are the most important and the most real. That it is the unseen reality, the spiritual dimension in which we live that's all around us, but can't be seen or touched or measured or felt, that it's in that dimension that the ultimate answers to life are found. That it is in in that dimension that the, the forces and the realities that are found there in that unseen world that determine how things in the seen world go. And living my life on that basis, resting my ultimate confidence and trust in God, who is the ultimate unseen reality. No one in this room has ever seen God. Yet He's there. He exists. He's the ultimately real being. And the mark of faith is a willingness to stake everything on that quiet conviction that God's promises can be trusted and God's presence is a very real thing. I remember watching an episode of The Twilight Zone a number of years ago. Stories about a guy that gets on this train 
And the train passes through the countryside and eventually stops in this village. He peers out of the window of the train and he sees that the village seems kind of strangely deserted, but nevertheless, this is his destination. He gets off the train, walks around the city square, nobody there, notices the trees and the landscaping and the shrubbery, and walks down a residential street and sees empty houses, beautifully decorated but empty. Comes back to the town square and he notices that certain things in the town square have been rearranged in his absence. That tree that was over here is now over here and cars have been moved and buses are in different locations. And he can't understand this. And every once in a while he'd hear this high-pitched giggle. He'd look around, no idea where it came from. And it's not till the end of the episode that he realizes that what had happened to him is he'd entered the twilight zone and had been plopped down in the play village of a young schoolgirl. And she would giggle every once in a while and rearrange the houses and the trees and the cars just for pleasure. And he'd gotten trapped in that world, which was being controlled by a being that he could not see. Now, struck me that that's an illustration of what the Scripture understands about life, that the world that we see of cars and buses and people and buildings and careers and stocks and bonds and so forth, that, that what happens in the seen world is really controlled by a being and by forces that cannot be seen. And that's what the writer is asking us to do, to accept that as our worldview and to stake everything on it, life, goods, property, reputation, on developing a life of biblical faith, a belief in God's promises, first of all, and secondly, a belief in His presence and a confidence in those things. I read an article recently on the super collider that they're building in Texas, of course, the purpose of this, uh, this is the biggest scientific instrument that's ever been built, and the purpose of this thing is to explore matter. What scientists are looking for is the, the basic building blocks of matter, and so they're into bosons and photons and mesons and quarks and all sorts of things. But the thing that really struck me as I read about that is that uh, what scientists believe is that there are only four forces in the universe. But every one of these forces that determine everything that happens in the physical world are unseen. Gravity, for instance, is an incredibly powerful force. If you don't believe me, walk off a ten-story building sometime. It's an incredibly powerful force, but it cannot be seen. In fact, scientists are looking for what they suspect are gravitons, some little basic building block of matter that carries the force of gravity, but they haven't been able to find it. They don't know what it is, where it is, what it looks like. It's unseen. And yet its, its manifestations are absolutely real. It is a real force, even though it cannot be seen. And that's what the writer is asking us to place our confidence that in, is that the, the spiritual realities of life, God and His truth and His resources and His promises, even though they are things that cannot be seen or measured, uh, they are ultimately real, and they are the things that, that determine our ability to find contentment and growth and maturity in this life. Now, faith is obviously the key term in chapter 11. The word itself occurs 25 times in this chapter. The little phrase, by faith, occurs 18 times in this chapter. And each one of the Old Testament saints that the writer points our attention to is someone who did what he did by faith. If you glance through here, you realize right away what an active thing faith is. Many people tend to think of faith as something which is passive, kind of a let go and, 
and let God approach to life, kind of a dreamily inert state where you sit around waiting for the Spirit to move. But that's not biblical faith at all. It's very active. It's courageous. It, it's bold. It, it takes uh, risks. It steps out in faith. Uh, it is courageous. It faces challenges. It takes chances. It's aggressive and active. And the actions that each one of these figures took was prompted, motivated, and impelled by their faith. And it's important that we understand that, that, that faith, a, a mindset of confidence in God and His Word and His resources, is to be something that's to affect every part of life, that everything we are to do, whether it's raising children or selling stocks or cleaning teeth, is to be done out of, a, out of an expression or done as an expression of our faith and our trust in God. We see Him connected with everything that we do and rely upon His resources for everything that we do in life. And our activity then becomes a way of expressing our faith. And one of the problems in much of the teaching in, the, in Christian circles today is that connection is missed. And that people read chapter 11 as if the little, the two-word phrase that's found at the beginning of almost every verse wasn't even there. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses. By faith, Moses. By faith, he. By faith, he. By faith, they. Over and over. Everything they did, they did was by faith. But... But as uh, contemporary Christians, we tend to forget that the first two words are there. And we'll just exhort people to do the stuff in the second half of these verses. And we'll lash them and lacerate them and appeal to them and exhort them and motivate them and challenge them and rebuke them to do the things in the second half of the verse, not realizing that it's not possible to do these things unless we do them by faith. That that's the mark of, of authentic Christianity is that what we do... What we are able to do, we do not do because we're made out of better stuff than other people, but because we believe in a great God, that He is what makes the difference in life. And everything we do is to be an expression of our quiet confidence that He is available, that He is present, and that His resource is what I need to handle my life. Now, as I mentioned, each one of the examples in this chapter, we'll look at verses 20 through 40 this morning, but each one of the, the, the men or women that's mentioned in this passage was marked by this, this biblical definition of faith, a quiet conviction in God's promises, quiet trust in His presence. Let's read verses 20 through 22 first and look at Jacob, Joseph, and Isaac. By faith Isaac, verse 20, blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. That is, as Isaac got to the end of his life, God had given him a word of promise concerning his sons, and he pass that word of promise on to his sons. writer doesn't make any mention of the fact that Jacob tricked Esau here out of the blessing that, that Isaac intended to go to Esau. But the point is that Isaac, as far as he was concerned, he was acting in faith. Okay? His son might have been acting in deceit and manipulation, but he was acting in faith, believing that the promises that God had given him for his sons, he would make good on Verse 21, by faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. So Jacob, as he came to the end of his life in Egypt, remember Joseph had summoned him to come. He and, and Joseph's brothers had come up from Palestine to Egypt after Joseph had risen to prominence there. And Jacob died there in Egypt and he blessed each one of the sons of Joseph. This was on the point of death. He was so weak that he couldn't even get to his feet without help. And so he hoisted himself up uh, using his staff and leaning on his staff. He ended his life worshiping God. Verse 22, by faith Joseph, when he was dying, 
made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel, gave orders concerning his bones. Joseph died in 1876 B.C. in Egypt. But he believed that one day God would liberate his descendants from Egyptian bondage and take them to the land of promise. He believed that. And so as he died, those are the last words on his lips, a mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel. That wouldn't happen for 430 years. But he believed that no matter how long it took, God would keep his word to him and to his descendants. And he even gave orders concerning his bones. He died, was buried in Egypt. He says, boys, I want you, when the time comes to dig up my bones, I want you to cart them to Canaan and I want to be buried there in the land of promise. And I'm so convinced that that's going to happen, I'm going to give you an order right now to make sure that you do that. And in Joshua 24, we went through Joshua a couple of years ago, we got to that account in chapter 24 where uh, they saw to it, where Joshua saw to it that Joseph's bones were reburied there in Shechem. So each one of these patriarchs, as he approached death, approached it with a quiet confidence in the promises that God had made to him and to his descendants. A couple of things I want us to observe there just in these first three verses. One is the effect that faith has on death. Everybody in this room is going to die someday. Every last one of us. Mortality rate is still 100%. Maybe farther off for some of us than others, but every last one of us is going to die. Now it's worth thinking about. How am I going to die? How am I going to go out? Am I going to go out angry, resentful, fearful, bitter, uh, anxious, uptight? Or am I going to go out like Isaac and Jacob and Joseph with a sense of optimism, confidence, anticipation, looking ahead, looking forward, not looking back, but looking forward. Yeah, that's one of the marks of faith, is that it faces death with a quiet optimism. Other thing is to notice the effect it had on their parenting. Now, Isaac, or Jacob in particular, was a man that did not learn to walk by faith till late in his life. Everything he tried to do up to the very end of his life, he did by resorting to deceit and to manipulation. He thought the way to get ahead was to outwit people, take advantage of them, depend on his own uh, skill, his own wit, his own intellect to get ahead. It wasn't until the end of his life that he learned the importance of faith. But when he understood it, when he learned it, he said, this is what I need to communicate to my children. This is the last words. He says, I'm going to speak to my sons. as a word about the promises of God. And I want to encourage them to place their faith in the promises and the presence of God. It struck me that will be a goal of all of us as parents, to model a life in which they see in our household this kind of faith, that they see parents who really believe in the promises of God, who take them to heart and believe in His presence and, and seek to live that conviction out in every dimension of life. And then verbally, not only by example, but verbally encourage our children as they grow to maturity to cling to the promises and the presence of God. Then in verses 23 through 27, he moves from the patriarchs to the example of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. I want to stop right there just for a moment. What's emphasized in verse 23 is not the faith of Moses, but the faith of his parents. This illustrates what we just talked about. As, as we'll go on and look at 24 through 28, we see Moses taking steps of faith that represented courage, bravery, risk. Where did he learn that? Where did he learn how to be courageous by faith? Well, he learned it at home. He grew up in a household where he saw this modeled by his parents. 
One thing that strikes me is that the reason that they took such risks uh, was because Moses was just a beautiful child. I just love how, how human the Scriptures are. They're motivated at, at the first by nothing more than their delight at what an attractive baby God had given them, how beautiful he was, how plump his little cheeks were, and how bright his little blue eyes were. And they loved that child. He was a beautiful child. And they couldn't bear the thought of seeing that child put to death by the king's edict. And so they sheltered him. And they took incredible personal risk in order to protect this young uh, little life. The king's edict he's referring to there, of course, is the command that the Pharaoh had given that every young Hebrew male child was, be, was to be put to death immediately upon birth. It was just kind of legislated infanticide, very similar to what you have in China these days where women are forced to have abortions if they have more than one child. And yet Moses' parents uh, did not want to see this, this innocent life taken. And so they were willing to risk everything in order to protect, protect that young life. And it struck me that that's the mark of faith in parenting, is the willingness to set aside our own rights, a willingness to set aside our own comfort, willingness to set aside our own convenience in order to give our children uh, what they need. Parenthood doesn't mean giving up your authority, but it does mean giving up your rights. I read a book just a couple of weeks ago by Ross Campbell called How to Really Love Your Child. Excellent book. I'd highly recommend it. It says there's three ways in which you can convey to your children uh, unconditional love. So that's really the problem that most parents have is they love their children, but they don't know how to convey it. He says here are three ways to do it. And the thing that struck me, and we'll go through, we'll see how that works out, is that in each one of these, a parent has to learn how to set aside his own instinct or his own comfort or his own preference in order to give the child what it needs. First thing he says is really important to give to your children is eye contact. When you talk to him, he says, look him in the eye. He says, now, unfortunately, most children associate eye contact with lectures. It's about the only time we really get down and look our children eyeball to eyeball is when they screwed up big time and they, uh, they can see it coming. But he says, get used to talking to your children eyeball to eyeball, face to face. It communicates to them that they are valued, that they're, they're a real person. Well, you now that takes... You may be watching a ball game on, on the tube or, or reading the sports page. Uh, and uh, your child comes and wants to ask you questions. Very tempting to not even look away from what you're doing and just carry on a side conversation. So even in that little act of setting aside what you're doing to turn and, and look your child in the eye requires a setting aside of a little right. Second thing he says is extremely important is giving them physical affection. This may be tough for fathers to learn in particular with their boys. Remember how weird it was for me to learn how to, to hug J.D. It was easy with Jana, but with a boy it's different. you got a little weirdness to overcome. But he says that's what an effective father does is he gives his children, both boys and girls, lots of physical affection, hugs and kisses and embraces and tussle and wrestle on the floor. Third thing he says is really important is focused attention, that a parent set aside time to be with each one of his children alone, give them undivided focused attention. And again, that may be the hardest thing for a parent to do because so many other things come in that demand, uh, make demands on our time. Easy to crowd those things out. But that's the mark of faith is a parent's willingness to set aside his own comfort and convenience in order to minister to his children. Now Moses grew up in this household of faith and imitated it as an adult. He says in verses 24 through 27, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. That is really a great phrase, the passing 
pleasures of sin. What's really instructive to you about that is that there is pleasure in sin. You see that? Scriptures admit that. They understand that sin is pleasurable. It feels good. I mean, if there wasn't anything attractive to it, we wouldn't be inclined to do it. You know, if Satan came to us and said, here, do this, and I'll cave the side of your head in, we say, yeah, I'll pass. But there is pleasure, see, in sin. But the writer points out that the, that the pleasure we derive from sin is passing. It's there, and it's gone. But what's left behind is a bitter aftertaste. And Moses had learned that lesson. He considered, verse 26, one of the greatest verses in the Bible, in my judgment, considering the reproach of Christ, that is, the ridicule, the humiliation, the rejection that was attached to his belief in a coming Christ, a coming Messiah, considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. The first incident he refers to here is the time when Moses had grown to a position of prominence in the Pharaoh's household. He was the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. This queen is probably the queen that historians know as Hatshepsut. I always thought that if I was a queen, I would change my name if I was Hatshepsut to something that people could say. But at any rate, uh, she was childless. And Moses, therefore, as her adopted son, was her heir to the throne. And she became the queen over Egypt for a brief time. Egypt, the greatest empire in the world, was, was ruled by this woman. And Moses, as her adopted son, may well have been in line as an heir, may well have inherited the control of the richest and most powerful kingdom in the world. One day, when he was about age 40, he saw an Egyptian slave master ruthlessly beating an Israeli. And Moses had a choice right at that point. Did he side with the cruel Egyptian slave master, pretend he didn't see anything, say nothing, and keep his position and his future secure? Or would he side with the oppressed people of God, cast his lot with that Israeli, come to his defense, protect him, identify himself with the people of God, and risk everything to do that? The writer encourages us to imitate Moses' example. Be willing to, under no circumstances, to, to forfeit our integrity, to compromise our righteousness, our commitment to God's people, our commitment to the truth, simply for our own protection and comfort. Now, where this rubber may meet the road for us in this area is in, in the marketplace, in the career choices that we may have to make. For most of us, God has placed us in secular occupations in the marketplace because He wants us to be salt and light right where we are. And we may never be faced with one of these really difficult moral choices. But if we are faced with a choice that Moses was faced with, where we have advance, promotion, security, financial prosperity on the one hand, but the price of hanging on to those things is a compromise of our integrity, our ethics, our righteousness, then the challenge of the Scripture is never to make that trade-off, to preserve integrity and righteousness, no matter what it costs us in terms of career, vocation, future. I have several friends I've known over the last year have been faced with just those very difficult choices. One is a close friend who was in personnel uh, management of a fairly large company and was constantly being pressured and asked to do things to employees and with employees that he knew were were unethical and that his conscience simply could not uh, could not endorse. 
And eventually he was forced because of that conflict to leave the company. He had to resign. Had no job waiting for him. Did not know what God was going to do with him. But he knew he could not compromise his integrity simply for the sake of a job. And Moses, the reason he was able to do this is he was looking to the reward. He understood that what he would, would compromise, what he would give up uh, in that circumstance was worth so much less than what he could possibly gain in that trade-off. And that what he would hang on to in his terms of his integrity, his trust, his righteousness, that what he would hang on to, even though it seemed to cost him everything, in the end would give him everything. He was looking to the reward. We see real growth and progress in his faith, by the way, in verse 27, that he left Egypt the first time. I think in verse 27 he's referring to the time when Moses left Egypt in the Exodus. The first time that Moses left Egypt, he ran like a scared rabbit. When he killed the Israeli, he heard that the, the pharaohs were upset with him and feared for his life and ran, ran. And yet the second time he left Egypt, he left courageously and boldly, went toe-to-toe, with the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh was the one who blinked. So his faith had grown, which I think is a great encouragement uh, to us, uh, that I may not have the faith to stand toe-to-toe with the king at this point, but if I continue to look at the one who was unseen, I one day will. The other thing that kind of impressed me there is that there's a realistic recognition that the thing that would have stopped Moses in his tracks was the wrath of the king. He, he feared the reaction of the king if he challenged him and sought to lead his people out of bondage. And uh, it, it occurred to me just how paralyzing and crippling fear is to us in so many human relationships. I expect that probably for all of us there is something that we are putting off because we are afraid of what will happen if we do it. We know we need to do it. We know that we need to make that phone call. We need to have that conversation. We need to write that letter. We need to set up that appointment. But we're afraid of the reaction of the person that we need to talk to. And so, so we put it off. But the mark of faith, the writer says, is the willingness to trust God for the courage to wade right into a circumstance like that and not put it off, but, but face it head on. When I was thinking of that, I said, oh, that's a terrific application. I've got to use that. And then I realized right in the middle of that that there was a phone call that I had been putting off because I was afraid to talk to this other person. So I had to stop what I was doing right there and pick up the phone make the call. But that's the mark of faith, is the willingness to wade into those difficult circumstances, not fearing the wrath or the reaction of others. Then he mentions the Passover in verse 28. Again, God had warned the Israelites that the destroyer, the angel of death, was going to pass all through the land of Egypt, the firstborn, and every household would be taken unless an innocent lamb was sacrificed and the blood of that innocent lamb was applied to the doorposts of the home. And by faith, Moses and the Israelites did that. Went back and looked at that account in Exodus 12, and a really amazing thing there is the implication is that when those families did that, and the angel of death passed through the camp of the Israelis, that God, him, God stationed himself, God himself stationed himself in a doorway, told the angel of death, you cannot pass. It struck me as just a beautiful picture of what has happened to those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, in our Passover lamb, that God himself now has become our protector from the angel of death. The Israelites' faith is mentioned in verse 29. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. In other words, the problem with the Egyptians was not just bad timing, but lack of faith. 
By faith, the walls of Jericho, in verse 30, fell down. Notice, after they had been encircled for seven days. It's instructive to me that he reminds us that it was only after the city had been encircled for seven days that the walls of Jericho fell. In other words, God said, the walls will fall, and what I want you to do, your part, is to trust me and my word, my promise to you, and then just march around the city. And so they did that day one. Nothing happened. I told the story to my kids this week. Uh, they asked me for a story in the bathtub one night, and so I was thinking of this path, I'll tell them about Jericho. I said, now God told them that the way that the walls would fall would be to go out and march around the city trusting God. So I said, they went out, and they marched around the city. And what do you think happened? I said, oh yeah, the walls fell down. Ah, no, nothing happened. So then the next day, Tuesday came, and God said, I want you to trust me. I want you to go out and walk around that city a second time. And so I said, that's what they did. What do you think happened? All oh, the walls fell down. No, nothing. They Seventh day, I said. And they marched around the walls of the city one time. What do you think happened? Oh, finally they said the walls fell down. No, nothing happened. Finally, we got them around the seventh time. And yes, then finally the walls fell down. I think the reason the writer stresses that is that one of the marks of faith is this willingness to patiently wait for God to work things out in His His timing. That we trust God, nothing seems to happen. And uh, we can panic. But the mark of an authentic biblical faith is it continues to trust in God's promises to work things out, to be what we need, to satisfy our needs, even when we see nothing happening at the time. That's the way in which Moses, in verse 27, was able to endure. That's often what happens to us when we take that first bold step of faith, just almost immediately after we've done that. After we pass the point of no return, we're suddenly just filled with panic. What in the world have I done? And we want to see if we can take it all back. But if we do what Moses did, continue to look at the one who was unseen, then we can handle that panic, handle that hysteria, and continue to march forward. Verse 31, he mentions the example of Rahab. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. She's always known in the Scriptures as not just Rahab, but Rahab the harlot. Every time she shows up, that's like her last name. And you begin to wonder, well, why is it that the Scriptures are so insistent of, of reminding us of this, this truth about her? And I think the point of that is it becomes very clear then that the reason that Rahab received her endorsement from God, received her approval from God, had nothing to do with, with her lifestyle, but it had everything to do with her faith, that she was accepted by God not because she cleaned up her act, but because she believed and trusted in God. And then God came in, cleaned up her act. But she received every bit as much endorsement, approval, acceptance from God as if she'd lived a spotless life simply because she believed in Him. I think that could be a great encouragement to us because just as we may be in Rahab's situation, we may have a past that we can't do anything about. I mean, it's done. What we have done we have done. It may be sorted, maybe something we're ashamed of, something we're not proud of, but it's done. It's there. It's writ large, written in black and white. Can't undo it. But Rahab becomes a tremendous encouragement to us at this point to realize that God does not withhold any of his endorsement or affirmation or approval of us because of the mistakes we've made in the past. He says, I accept you because you trust me. And that's the only reason. And I accept you as completely because you trust in me as I possibly could. You can't add to that. You can't take away from that by anything in your past. Then in verse 32, he goes on, What more shall I say? For time will fail me, 
I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. Basically what he's saying here is all these guys were in the outline, but whoa, it's one minute till communion. I'm in trouble here. So, so I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel any more than he did. But I just want to make a couple of comments about this last paragraph. Let me just read this through and then just make a couple of comments. What I want you to observe is the contrast between verses 33 through 35a and verses 35b through 38. These, he says, verse 33, by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Now that's the part we like. Believers overcoming insurmountable odds by faith and receiving glorious, outstanding victories. We love that part. And that's part of the Christian life. There may be some of us in this room who have that sort of uh, incredible kind of conquest in our future. God going to do something through one of us in this room that you would not believe, overcoming incredible odds. But he goes on in verse 35b, others were tortured. That word means, it refers to being stretched out on the rack, literally. Tortured on the rack. Not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Reference to Isaiah, probably, who was cut in two with a wooden saw, if you can feature that. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. In other words, things didn't work out for them because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they should not be made perfect. His point at the end there is that God has found a way to give these people in the end of the chapter what they longed for, what they looked for, but they did not find it in this life. What they found in this life was defeat, destitution, affliction. But God had something better in store for them. And in connection with us, he says, they will one day be made perfect. They will receive an eternal reward, an eternal inheritance that far outweighs anything that they gave up or deprived of in this life. You compare verse 34 with verse 37, you see the stark contrast. Some, he says in verse 34, by faith escaped the edge of the sword. Others, by faith in verse 37, were put to death with the sword. It's just a reminder to us that we do not know what plans God has for us. The way He may work in your life may be much different than the way in which He works in my life. Uh, And if we understand that, uh, it can save us a good deal of comparison and jealousy. Some people seem to be cut all the breaks. Things work out so smoothly for them. They have glorious ministries, successful ministries. We seem to lurch from one stage in life to the next. remember reading in one of the Narnia Chronicles... uh, story about the horse and his boy, a boy and a girl, who experience certain adventures together. And Aslan treats the boy much differently than he treats the girl. The girl at one point, he, he claws her on the back, just rips 
her skin to shreds right down her back, leaves a permanent scar there. The boy he handles instead with, with gentleness. The girl complains about this. And all Aslan would say when she complained to him about what he was doing to the boy, all Aslan said, it's not, it's not your story. It's not your story. It's the same thing that Jesus said to Peter when he came to John, John 21. Jesus told Peter, you're going to die by being crucified upside down. Peter said, bummer. What about John? What's going to happen to him? And all Jesus would say to him, he knew what was going to happen to John, but all he said to Peter is, look, that's not your story. You worry about Peter, and I'll take care of John. And then we ask the question, well, if that's the way it turns out, then why, why have faith? Why exercise faith at all? Well, there's two reasons that the writer says in verses 39 and 41 is you gain God's approval through faith. Uh, that you receive His endorsement. He looks at you and you act in faith even when everything is falling apart around you and He sees you clinging to His promise and to His presence. And He approves of that. He says, that's a woman that I can be proud of. That's a man that I'm proud to identify myself with. I'm proud to, to be His God or her God. And then lastly, indicates in verse 40 that perfection awaits those who act in faith. That one day all the pain and the sorrow is going to vanish. It's going to be replaced with an eternal reward of contentment, satisfaction, every need abundantly and fully satisfied. That is our hope. Well, let's uh, close in prayer while the men come to distribute the elements and we'll have them uh, go ahead and do that right away and we'll go into our communion. Let's pray and then we'll take the Lord's table together. Lord, we thank You for this word at the end of this passage about Your approval and how it is communicated to us by faith. We thank You that You have found a way by the shed blood of Christ to, to give us Your approval, unqualified, unconditional, perfect, complete. And we pray that You would give us a sense in these next few minutes of the price at which that approval was purchased Give us a great appreciation for the death of Christ on our behalf and a realization in these quiet moments of how much you endorse and accept and love us simply because we believe in you. Enable us to realize that the faults that we carry with us, the weaknesses, the failures of this past week, those are covered, forgiven, because we believe, because we have faith in you. Pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.